0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: Zambian president is in China for a state visit. China's new energy vehicle sector experiences a remarkable growth this year. The European Commission announces costs to its economic growth forecasts for the Eurozone this and next year. Russian media has confirmed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has arrived in Russia for a meeting with President Vladimir Putin. You're listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge-Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "Road Today. Zambian President Hakainde H. Lema is in China to facilitate exchanges as the two countries prepare to celebrate 60 years of diplomatic relations next year. Bilateral ties have grown since Zambia gained independence in 1964. Trade between the two countries reached a new high last year. Daniel Aramoy has details.
2: China was among the first countries to establish diplomatic ties with Zambia after its independence from Britain in 1964. Diplomatic relations between the two countries have grown alongside economic and trade cooperation. The main areas for cooperation are agriculture, mining, infrastructure and health. Only a few weeks ago, uh, we were launching a $600 million fertilizer plant that has been built by China. all no, we have been importing fertilizer at very, very expensive prices and now we'll cut it back on the forex because we'll be buying this fertilizer locally. Zambia is a major export of copper, cobalt and other minerals to China, while Chinese exports to Zambia center on agricultural and industrial goods such as tractors and machinery. Official data shows that bilateral trade volume between the two countries stood at over $5.8 billion from January to October last year. thus the highest in any single year and is a 37% rise compared to the same period in the previous year. More than 600 Chinese businesses have invested over $3 billion US billion in Zambia, creating 50,000 local jobs. Um, China has been there for us. Uh, in assisting Zambia's developmental agenda. So, with a partner like this that has invested more than 3 billion United States dollars uh, in this economy, I can assure you our diplomatic ties are virtually unshakable. Tazara. A 1,860-kilometre-long railway line built by China in the 1970s stands as a historic milestone of China's enduring friendship with Zambia. More recent projects under China's Belt and Road Initiative include airports, roads, as well as a modern conference center. As China and Zambia celebrate 60 years of diplomatic ties, the two sides are looking to strengthen their friendship based on mutual respect and win-win cooperation.
1: That was Daniel Aratmoy reporting. So for more on China-Zambia relations, joining us on the line is Dr. Ho Wenping, expert on African affairs and a senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Ho.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Ho, can you provide an overview of the historical evolution of China-Zambia relations? Any key milestones or developments in this bilateral relationship?
3: Oh, yes. Uh, Zambia, you know, uh, and China, we have enjoyed a very strong friendship. Ever since uh, Like uh, Zambia got the independence, and China was the very first one also uh, recognized. Uh, Zambia and the diploma- uh, diplomatic ties have been established and especially uh, like this kanzara railway Uh, our correspondent just mentioned uh, that was serving as a milestone uh, in china-africa relationship Uh, during uh, those times uh, around like uh, six to seven years building time uh, a lot of chinese engineers have been dispatched there to help to build this railway Uh, that railway can be uh, served as uh, like a freedom railway uh, you know helping the Zambia and Tanzania to consolidate uh, their independence uh, from uh, British uh, this uh, colonialism, uh, there's also apartheid South Africa government by that time, uh, they all want to kill uh, those newly born frontier African countries like Zambia and Tanzania. So even though China by that time wasn't that rich, uh, we also got independence not that long, and our economic situation of course was also very difficult, but uh, then the Chinese leader Mao, uh, Chairman Mao, and the Premier Zhou Enlai, they all agreed immediately uh, to the request to come from Zambia and Tanzania and to help them to build this 1,800-long mile, uh, this railway, and helping them to export the import of the necessary things and then to consolidate their, uh, their independence. So this is a milestone, I think, uh, in our bilateral relationship.
1: Given their historical background, the visit of Zambian president to China is seen as a significant event in their relations. What are the main objectives and expected outcomes of this visit?
3: Well, I think uh, in the uh, new era, uh, now, 21st century, especially after three years of COVID-19, and also uh, one and a half years is the Ukraine crisis, uh, many African countries, including Zambia, now has been facing uh, three kinds of crisis, uh, food crisis, uh, fuel crisis, and also financial crisis, especially financial crisis. Uh, Zambia, uh, I think uh, that was the, best, the first uh, African countries uh, got this financial uh, this uh, debt crisis, so the default, uh, this challenge. So now they are facing uh, this uh, very difficult time uh, for the financial this, uh, issue. So I think uh, for Zambia, uh, they want to find more opportunities, uh, how to uh, provide the new uh, this driving force for the economic uh, this rebound, especially in the era of the uh, COVID-19, post-COVID-19, and also how to reschedule uh, their debt, uh, this money, and also find, the, like, that's why, you know, the Zambia president uh, this time around visited Shenzhen uh, first, uh, rather than saying come to Beijing first. Because they want to, uh, to get to, uh, like this digital economy, how to, uh, you know, integrate it with their, uh, local economy. So this is what they expected. And for China, uh, of course, uh, China will continue uh, to strengthen our ties with uh, all these African countries, including Zambia. Especially, you know, this coming month, October, we will have our third, uh, One Belt One Road, uh, this summit. Uh, Zambia also is the one. Uh, you know, join this BRI uh, uh, from the very beginning. So many infrastructure projects, and also the copper. Uh, we have a special economic zone in Zambia uh, in terms of the copper, uh, this exploitation, and also uh, you know refinery copper. Uh, this cooperation. So it's very uh, crucial time, and I think uh, both uh, need to strengthen the relationship.
1: Like the visiting Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, Zambian President also chose Shenzhen, known as China's Silicon Valley, as his first stop during his visit. Could you please elaborate more on the factors or considerations might have influenced this decision? Why Shenzhen first? Oh, yes. Uh, those
3: two presidents, uh, both uh, Venezuela and then Zambia Zambia president, all chose uh, our Silicon Valley, like Shenzhen, as a stop. I think uh, the reason, uh, qui- reason uh, is quite clear, because Shenzhen is serving as our frontier city, especially uh, for hosting like Huawei, uh, the headquarter of Huawei is there, uh, the headquarter of Tencent is there. So they are ICT, uh, this, uh, you know, information, technology, those, uh, those centers. So they show, uh, those uh, you know, the very frontier, the digital economy, uh, this power. For African country, uh, no matter if uh, Venezuela or African country, now they all want to grasp uh, closely, tightly uh, with this uh, fourth industrial uh, revolution at this time. Now no country can be left behind. Uh, if you're left behind with this new moment uh, for uh, digital economy, and then probably uh, you look another time uh, for your economic development. Actually, not only those two countries I just mentioned. I still remember in the year 2018, uh, when uh, this uh, China Africa Summit was taking place, uh, that was also uh, one of the China forecast meetings that's been upgraded into summit. And then after uh, those the presidents uh, had a talking, joining the summit in Beijing, after that, at least, uh, I think, uh, maybe eight African leaders, presidents, They all traveled from Beijing to Hangzhou by that time, not Shenzhen. Hangzhou, because Hangzhou is the headquarters for Alibaba uh, company, uh, for Jetmar, with Alibaba. Alibaba also is, uh, you know, a leading company, a frontier company, leading China's digital economy, and also uh, build China as the uh, cash-free society. That was very much impressed uh, by many African countries. Mm. Uh, They think they also can do that. Uh, follow this path for the development uh, to do this uh, we call uh, this uh, play fully this uh, advantage uh, for the backward backward advantage Uh, even though you are leaving behind uh, you know but you can uh, play this advantage being the backward advantage
1: Mm -hmm. when our trade between china and zambia has shown consistent growth over the years zambian exports to china also rose at an Annualized rate of thirty-two percent. So, could you provide more insights into the nature of these Zambian exports to China? What opportunities does the Chinese market present for Zambia?
3: Uh, China market is very important and very, uh, you know, biggest one. Uh, the trade market for Zambia, especially as I mentioned, uh, we imported a lot of those uh, resources, especially like copper. Zambia is the leading copper producer country. Uh, you know, in the world, and uh, we also established uh, this kind uh, you know, special economic zone uh, in the Copper Province. Uh, that uh, Copper Zone. Uh, even personally myself uh, visited there at least uh, two or three times. Uh, you know, when Zambia, this uh, Copper International Copper Price is getting down, a uh, many uh, Western companies, uh, they even leaving. Uh, leaving and then just leave left behind the uh, copper mining, the uh, factory behind. So make a Zambia economy, uh, in big trouble. You know, by that time, Chinese company, uh, they go another way. Uh, they uh, do more investment and purchase those uh, mining, copper mining factory left behind by, uh, you know, British and even India company. So that is why I uh, can also help hold a Zambia economy not falling that down uh, to the bottom so now the uh, international property, this, uh you know market is uh, going back so that is why uh, this can also help uh, Zambia a lot. So we are the biggest market for Zambia's those, uh, resources and on the other way around Zambia also needs kind of uh, manufacture goods and also agricultural goods uh, the packs and packs, and all those agricultural uh, equipment as well. So Zambia now is diversified their economy. Uh, they don't want just to rely on their corporate resources. So in the way of uh, diversifying your economy, of course, uh, China's those uh, manufactured goods, agricultural technical know-how, all those things is very much needed uh, by Zambia side as well. That is why uh, China Zambia trade uh, is very complementary with each other.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Dr. He. That's Dr. He Wenping, expert on African affairs and a senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. China's new energy vehicle sector has witnessed impressive growth this year. In the first eight months, the country's total NEV output increased by 37 percent, while sales surged by 39 percent. New energy vehicles accounted for about 30 percent of China's total auto sales. China aims to bring this year's NEV sales to 9 million units, an increase of 30 percent. China is said to become the world's biggest car exporter this year, overtaking Japan. For a closer look at China's new energy vehicle industry, our Zhang Yang spoke with Chu Qiang, the assistant director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmi University. So Dr. Chu, China's new energy vehicle sector has seen impressive
4: growth in the first eight months of this year. The output and sales increased by 37% and 39% respectively. So how do you explain
0: the reasons behind it? Well, I think there are many reasons. Um, number one, if you take a look at the soaring price of the oil, you will understand the reason why we need EV more than ever. Uh, they really can drastically lower the price of your driving. Uh, for example, for every mileage you drive, uh, for the gasoline in China, it's usually like one yuan per per kilometer. But if you use electricity uh, driven by an EV, probably just one-tenth of the cost. So it's going to be much cheaper, especially against the current background, with the high inflation all over the world. I think it's more than ever, it's going to be very precious. And secondly, if you take a look at the EV, EV itself is a whole different product more than the conventional vehicles. Well, for the outsiders, probably going to think, oh, but this is just a vehicle driven by electricity. What else? But let me give you some comparison. It's very different. It's like a Nokia phone versus a iPhone. So even though they're all telephone, make you cost, but the difference is it's a whole new platform. EVs driven by electricity, and meanwhile, all the ECU are also driven by electricity. So it means the car can be smarter, faster, more efficient, and then can be a whole ecology for the information. You can use it for many other purposes other than just driving them around. So that's going to be a whole new circle of businesses. It's going to be a whole new lifestyle, like what you've been seeing, the changes bring by, brought by the iPhone, smartphones to you right now.
4: Mm-hmm. And China rolled out his first uh, NEV development plan back in 2008. So how have those policy supports helped the development of the uh,
0: new energy vehicle industry, do you think? Do you know who brought this topic to the central government of China in the first place? Well, the earliest document I can find is actually been brought to the central government in 1998. And the author of the report is actually the Chinese version of Albenheimer, Mr. Qian senator He, in the end of the 1990s, used to write that all the patents for the conventional cars has been holding by many other developed nations. China has a very huge challenge to overcome that. So in order to develop our own uh, automobile industry, why not China just to cut the chase and to start to build their own EV? Because electronic motor, electric motor, actually does not have so many patents. And I think this opinion has been considered. And then I think the minister of Wang Gang, the former minister of the uh, Ministry of the Science and Technology, understood what Mr. Chen and has understand, has said and then write a report further to the central government and then further form detailed plans of the uh, of plans and also uh, action details. And then you see uh, the whole industry has been spanned out step by step.
4: And tell us more about the policy supports. How have those policy supports actually helped the development of this industry in China?
0: I used to work with the the KaiTech of China, which is a Chinese Automobile Technology Research Center. Well, for the EV, actually the government has the downpouring a lot of investment in the policies, for example, the taxation. So in order to encourage people to use more of the EV, the government really put down lots of fiscal, fiscal resources to help people to purchase EVs with a very favorable condition and price. And other than that, it gives a lot of tax rebate for the automobile OEMs, the builders, to help them to put down put more of the money they earn into the R&D circle. And also... Uh, you know, you do know that uh, if you want to build a uh, traditional vehicle, if you want to uh, to have a traditional automobile vehicle company, you will have a lot of registrations. You will have a very high threshold in the policy. But if you try to be a EV builder, and then government will give you the whole green light treatment, so you can just build your own factory with a simple registration in the government. And you can outsource many of the circles of building to other matured car builders to work together with them, but put down on your own brand. For example, the very famous car builders like Expan, like Neo, they are actually not original car builders, but they switched from smart devices companies into this track. Of the industry now they become very very successful so these are all the contribution of the government favorable policies and you're seeing more to come for example in order to use automobile uh, the electronic automobile very smoothly you do not only need the good ev itself but also you need to use a smart fight uh, the road systems smart information systems so you can have uh, uh, auto driving so you can have uh, uh, all kinds of the uh, uh, information-sharing systems. But that is beyond the reach of the car builders, beyond the reach of the uh, automobile companies. They need the coordination between the automobile companies and the government and the roads and the communities and also people, pedestrians, community or residents, and et cetera. So government in China did a lot of jobs in there. For example, in Hanzhou, which is a very famous city for digital economy, They have invented something called the city brain. City brain means you have a data processing center and a computer computing center in the city. Mm. So you can coordinate all the traffic signals. All the information can be shared with EV. So everything can run in a very smart way. This is just one piece of the things that China have ever done to develop the EV system.
4: Mm. And China is a big market for EV, and as you mentioned, Tesla actually built his Shanghai factory in China very early. And also those uh, European car makers, BMW, Mercedes, they are also eyeing the market potential in China. So how do you see their competition in this
0: market, and can they coexist? Of course. Um, you will see that Chinese government always understands there is a factor called the black cat effect. What does that mean? It means competition from an economic side is always a good thing because it will increase the consumer's utility. It will add more of the benefit to the consumer by providing them more of the choices and also incentive the whole industry to lower their price, improve their technology. So that's a reason why Chinese government never set any threshold to impede the foreign competitors come in. And also I think... Uh, with their incoming, um, the Chinese car builders like the BYD, like the Expan, like the Neo, they will have the uh, opportunity to reach out to the international standard as well. And also, I think it's good news for the BMW, for Tesla as well, because also they can borrow and use China's very mature supply chain. For example, Tesla are now using uh, the, the blade battery being invented by the Ningde Shudai battery company. So this is a win-win result. And also, uh, they will enjoy the benefit of the growing middle-income group in China because with more of the Chinese middle-income people are trying to buy EV, I think everyone can find their own niche market in this market.
4: And you mentioned Chinese EV maker BYD. Actually, it topped the nation's sales and also export to a lot of different overseas markets. So how do you explain their competitive and success?
0: Well, BYD actually have a very long story, isn't it? They used to be just a little shabby carburetor building the low-end vehicles back in the 1990s. And they used to be car tractors. In order to catch up with the latest trend in technology, they have done a lot of the research and R&D by themselves. So the reason why they're so successful is one: on one hand, they've been put down so many investment on that, and secondly, is they have probably the most of the numbers of the uh, patents by themselves. So. They will have the more of the uh, profit margin of themselves. And also, certainly, this is a company we call the full supply chain company of the uh, automobile. For example, they can build their own chassis. They can have their own ECU system. And they have their own battery company. Do You know, even though they're uh, an EV company itself, but also BYD is one of the largest the battery builder of the whole world, only next to Ningde Shudan. And they are not only providing battery to their own EV, but also to the other competitors. That's the reason why they're so successful. So because of that, well, if you take a look at the competitors, for the same quality, same mileage, and the same of the decorations of the cars, one BYD vehicle's price is only 70% of the same level of vehicle produced by Toyota. That's the reason why they're so competitive and they been so popular and welcome
4: And also Chinese EV makers like BYD, they are now making investment in Thailand and other Southeast
0: Asian countries. So why is this choice? Uh, Number one uh, is because the ASEAN nations, ASEAN regions are one of the most important market, emerging market right now. In the whole ASEAN region, they have more than 600 million people and young people, the demographic structures is really, really optimized. And also they also have a soaring of a middle income class that guarantee the whole market uh, potential is really large. And secondly, a lot of people probably do not know is that uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, the country like that are also very famous and important market for the manufacturing. Thailand every year can produce more than 1.8 million vehicle per se. And even back in the 1990s, they are very large production base and OEM base for American cars and also Japanese cars. Uh, for Indonesia, it's the same, same similar story. So that's the reason why I think the company like BYD choose to relocate the ranches in those countries. One is looking at their capacities of building. And second is uh, aiming their consumers.
1: That was Professor Chu Chiang, the assistant director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. More to come, the European Commission announces cuts to its economic growth forecasts for the Eurozone this and next year. Russian media has confirmed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has arrived in Russia for a meeting with President Vladimir Putin. China urged Japan to accept strict international supervision over the discharge of Fukushima. Fukushima's nuclear contaminated water into the sea. This is Roe Today. We'll be back. Welcome back to World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Europe is facing a worse than expected growth outlook in the coming two years, mainly overshadowed by the gloomy fiscal landscape in the region's largest economy, Germany. The European Commission has cut its growth forecast for the Eurozone to 0.8% this year and 1.4% next. In May, it had predicted 1.1% growth in 2023 and 1.6% in 2024. The Commission predicts the German economy will contract by 0.4% this year, a downward revision from a May prediction of 0.2% growth. Germany said for a prolonged recession will be the only major European economy to experience an economic contraction this year. So to delve into this, let's have Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Professor Wang.
5: Thank you for the invitation.
1: How do you look at the revision of the economic growth forecast for the Eurozone in 2023 and 2024?
5: Well, it's no uh, surprise because of the uh, only uh, winner and losers uh, uh, players in today's world uh, after uh, the Ukraine war broke out, uh, thus the European Union, particularly Eurozone. Uh, because of the war, the capital flow over uh, away from the Europe and also uh, the energy uh, crisis and the uh, inflation particularly for the engine of the Eurozone economy, that's the German economy, because of the Germans' manufacturing power with the cheap uh, Russian energy. That's the driving forces for the reindustrialization of German economy. But after the war, uh, the heart decouple with the energy linkage with Russia. So the Germans suffered the most from all the major economies in the world. So that's the reason, basically, for the eurozone's economy slowing down.
1: The report has emphasized Germany's economic performance and the International Monetary Fund had already predicted Germany would be the only major advanced economy to shrink in 2023. What specific challenges is Germany facing in its economy and how do these challenges impact the broader Eurozone economy?
5: Well, there are two major reasons, of course, for the German economy uh, I know uh so we said dark prediction the first of course is the ukraine war as i mentioned but the second reason is also because of the manufacturing power of the traditional manufacturing power for germany is very strong it's very powerful but not much of the transformation now because of the ukraine war they want to go to low carbon uh, uh, energy uh, however the digitalization uh, germany is so like behind of even china and the united states even other uh, major economies so the new driving forces, rather the new driving forces, the traditional uh, power, as I mentioned, because of the energy prices increasing so rapidly, so it's a suffered most for the uh, German economy's tra- tra- uh, transfer from the traditional industrial co- to the digital
1: earlier you mentioned the impact of the Ukraine crisis on Eurozone's economic growth. Could you help us understand any examples on how has it been affecting the economic performance of the Eurozone? What areas will continue to be negatively impacted by this crisis in the region?
5: Well, if you compare the German economy uh, with the American economy, uh, that's uh, major differences. Uh, Firstly, the U.S. dollars, they are a hegemonic uh, currency. So Americans increased uh, the interest rates in the past two years for dozens of times. They sell the inflation uh, to uh, to other countries. Uh, they printed U.S. dollars, and then the people, other people, suffered. It's like the Americans saying the American, the U.S. dollar is American's currency. That's your problem. So the Eurozone actually suffered uh, also because of the Americans irresponsible of the uh, financial policy or. And Germany, oh, uh, because of the European Central Bank, they're also different with the, Euro- uh, the Americans' foreign reserve. Because uh, the European Central Bank, the top priority is to control the inflation, so they very tightened the monetary policy. They cannot print like the U.S. dollars. They print the euros to 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 kill, uh other uh, to to deal with the uh, the war. So that's also uh, the the Germans actually suffer a lot from from the. Uh, Institutions of the European Union.
1: The report also underscored the inflation in the region. How has the European Central Bank's approach to inflation control through interest rate hikes affected the economic slowdown in the uh, region? And what decisions is the ECB facing regarding its future actions?
5: Well, after the Ukraine war, the inflation uh, is a big problem uh, for all the European countries, uh, including the UK. Uh, because of the energy related, uh, uh, you know, not just the goods, but also purchase and uh, related uh, uh, industries also suffered a lot because they pay more price uh, for energy. Uh, we should uh, The Europeans should import more from US, uh, the US, the shale gas, even from the Middle East. So that's the cost to be uh, transferred to the uh, per price uh, mm. of the goods. Uh, but at the same time, also, uh, they spent too much money on the uh, to uh, to aid uh, Ukraine, and also suffered at that. So the eurozone, uh, as I mentioned, the top uh, task for the eurozone is to control the inflation. But the problem is when you uh, just focus on the inflation, uh, the people cannot consume too much. Uh, so servers, uh, in uh, it's, it's inflation suffered also the. The service companies, Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's the manufacturing and service companies all both suffered by the war. So that's within uh, the central bank of Europe, of the dilemma uh, to stimulate the economy, but sometimes keep the balance.
1: Indeed, the eurozone is experiencing a slowdown in economic activities like you mentioned in industry and services. And the provision of bank credit to the economy has decreased significantly due to monetary policy tightening. How does this impact the ability of individuals and businesses to invest in the region? What are the broader consequences for the eurozone economy?
5: Uh, yes, uh, uh, you know, when the Americans, you know, in, in, uh, raise or in, increase the interest rates in a thousands of times in the past years, but the eurozone actually for the negative uh, interest rates in the past years, but after the uh, the Ukraine war, that uh, eurozone has to uh, increase also. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they cannot uh, be so efficient by, by enhancing of the interest rates stimulate the economy. So that's because of uh, uh, the uh, euro, uh, eurozone. Uh, actually, they they need more driving forces. They need in new engines to to uh, by uh raise raising to attract more investment to the uh, to market. So traditionally, the eurozone is rely on the leverage in the financial market. When the uh, central bank invests, and then the private uh, companies will follow, and then from this can uh, have a more uh you know you un- on unbound some of the capitals invest but but after the the war broke out there's a, the the capitals fly away from the eurozone and then they need to find the new uh sectors and industries to attract the investment then the u s and the european union actually especially the eurozone they have a serious competition with under the so called framework of the decoupled de risk from china so they both suffered from the hardest couple with the u Russia's energy, and also softer the or de-risk from China, made in China.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wang. We appreciate your expertise and thoughtful responses on Eurozone's economic challenges and the factors affecting its performances. That's Dr. Wang Yiwei, Zhang Menai Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. This is Ro Today. We'll be back.
2: Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievsky Teixeira. I'm a professor of Public Policy and Management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join
4: us.
1: You're listening to Road Today. Russian media has confirmed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has arrived in Russia for a meeting with President Vladimir Putin. According to South Korean sources, Kim embarked on a journey from Pyongyang aboard a train this past weekend, joined by top-tier officials from North Korea's ruling party and military ranks. The summit marked the second time Putin and Kim have crossed paths with their first encounter taking place in Moscow back in 2019. So for more on the visit, we have Dr. Alexey Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Uh, can you provide some insights into the Un's visit to Russia and his meeting with President Vladimir Putin, especially in the context of recent developments in uh, North Korea's foreign relations?
6: Certainly nothing has been detailed apart from intended itinerary, uh, which was uh, shared with, uh, with, by, uh, with Russian media by uh, Putin's press secretary, Peskov, There hasn't been any discussions concerning or details concerning uh, the agenda, uh, even though there's been a lot of speculation whether it would um, uh, relate to enhancing uh, security and defense cooperation, economic cooperation. But I think, by and large, the two two sides will probably be discussing a reanimation of bilateral ties and taking it to, to a different level. And on top of that, I'm sure there's going to be a discussion about the security situation in and around the Korean Peninsula.
1: With the first meeting between these two taking place in Moscow back in 2019, could you highlight any key takeaways or developments from their previous meeting that might shed light on the objectives of their current discussions?
6: Well, the the, the meeting back in 2019 actually did take place in the Far East, so Kim Jong-un, did not travel far from uh, from the Russian Korean border and and at that time it was effectively uh, a, a point of reanimation ties a point of uh, discussing possibilities that was also the time when Russia was firmly um, in, in agreement with uh, upholding the uh, sanctions on, on North Korea which was imposed by the international community but Nothing has come through uh, uh, following that meeting also because COVID outbreak occurred and and North Korea locked itself up from and uh, self-isolated itself from the rest of the world. So uh, what was supposed to follow from that meeting did not eventuate. And I think this is the time when uh, there's going to be an attempt to reanimate something that perhaps was discussed because there was not a lot that was disclosed as a result. Uh, of uh, of the 2019 meeting. So again, you know, there is still a degree of secrecy that surrounds high-level talks involving North Korean and Russian officials.
1: South Korean media paid close attention to the meeting. How does South Korea's perspective on this visit align with its broader regional interests? And are there any implications for the Korean Peninsula?
6: Well, potentially, yes, there are implications because i uh, I mean if we if we take into account that North Korea and Russia are nuclear armed nations and when the two nuclear armed nations start talking and 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 clearly they have share, shared a uh, common uh, foreign policy and strategic objective objective obviously countries on the other side not, and South Korea would not be considered to be a friend of North Korea and given the fact that it has taken a, a clear pro-U.S., pro pro-Ukraine side uh, in, in in the war with with uh, in the war between uh, uh, Ukraine and and Russia, it it won it won't be considered to be a friendly nation by Moscow either. Obviously, there is going to be a, a, an attention paid. I think the concern for South Korea would be if Russia and North Korea will take their relationship to the next level because there's been a discussion whether. Uh, Russia-Korea and then may hold joint exercises. Uh, there are concerns that Russia may transfer some advanced nuclear and, and military capability to uh, North Korea in exchange for the supply of munitions and, and, and spares for, for Russian um, uh, conventional systems which are compatible to the ones produced and operated by the DPRK. Um, if, if Russia is to withdraw from the International sanctions regime that would obviously have an impact on 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 the state uh, of relations on on the Korean Peninsula. So clearly, South Koreans are watching all these body body moves, especially Pyongyang's body moves, with great interest as well as great concern. Because just days before uh, Kim uh, Kim Jong Un uh, sent on his trail to, to train to go to Russia, uh, North Korea held its massive military parade and 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 before that uh, they they carried out a simulated uh, exercise and uh, an exercise involving simulated use of tactical nuclear munitions
1: mm-hmm. professor how might kim jong's visit to russia be interpreted by washington uh, are there any potential messages or signals that russia and north korea intend to convey to the u.s through this visit
6: well, similarly to to South Korea, I think Washington would be uh, watching those activities with great concern over the situation on the, on the on the Korean Peninsula and and the fact that Washington currently is 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 engaged in a proxy conflict with Russia over over Ukraine. So, because potentially it may alter the the regional balance of power in in Northeast Asia, and certainly have very strong opinions about the forging strategic relationship between Washington, Tokyo, Seoul, um, as as well as the AUKUS uh, Security Pact involving involving Australia. So I think that uh, the United States government will be watching this meeting with great interest and will be keen to find out the details and, more importantly, the outcomes uh, that this meeting may produce.
1: Thanks, Professor, for providing us with valuable insights into Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia. We look forward to staying updated on this evolving situation and its implications for international relations. That's Dr. Alexey Raviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University in Australia. You are listening to Ro Today. Stay with us.
2: Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China-area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today.
1: You are listening to Road Today. China's permanent representative to the United Nations has urged Japan to accept strict international supervision over the discharge of Fukushima's nuclear contaminated water into the sea. Li Song severely criticized Japan for initiating the release at the opening of a September meeting of the International Atomic Energy Agency. He called for an independent international monitoring mechanism, adding that the IAEA's safety assessment assessment of Japan's plan is of a technical assistance and a consultative nature at Japan's request and does not have international legal force. So to talk more about this, joining us on the line is Professor Joseph Mahoney of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Uh, what are the key concerns raised by China's permanent representative Li Song regarding Japan's decision to release radioactive contaminated water uh, into the ocean? How does he argue that this is not solely Japan's private matter?
7: Well, Lee made a number of uh, key mo- uh, points, and I'll note three uh, in response to your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, he asserted that uh, Japan, uh, not China, has politicized uh, this issue, despite uh, repeated Japanese and American claims that China has exploited this politically at Japan's expense. Now, let's expand on this point. In fact, many countries are unhappy with this discharge, even if some of their governments have failed to criticize it, uh, because doing so would bear political consequences in terms of their relations with Japan and Japan's security guarantor the U.S., uh, which has supported the discharge, uh, some suspect, uh, to further rally Japan to be a key linchpin in Washington's ongoing efforts uh, to encircle and suppress China. Uh, second, uh, Lee asserted uh, that Japan has used political support from U.S., as well as exploitable mechanisms in the IAEA to greenwash the discharge while ignoring legitimate scientific concerns from leading international authorities and likewise ignoring concerns from neighboring countries and many of its own citizens. In short, uh, this should be a very public decision, but it's been undertaken in a conspiratorial private way. Uh, third, uh, Lee's key quote, and I, I think it reflects a point that many of us have been asking for the past year, is, quote, if the Fukushima water wastewater is safe, why must it be released into the ocean? And mm-hmm. if it's not safe, it should never be discharged into the sea.
1: Mm-hmm. Professor, in the context of the IAEA, Lee Seung suggested the agency assessment of Japan's plan does not have international legal force, in your opinion, what role should the agency play in overseeing Japan's ocean release of radioactive contaminated water? How do you look at Lee's emphasis on the need for international monitoring?
7: I think his point here was was very reasonable. He said it's vital uh, that the IAEA establish, uh, quote, a long-term effective and independent uh, international monitoring mechanism, free from Japanese control uh, he said this should be led by member states uh, of the agency and fully consider the interests and concerns of relevant stakeholders now this cons- uh, corresponds with what others in the international community have called for namely uh, the establishment of a comprehensive and substantive international uh, monitoring arrangement uh, with uh, the full participating uh, full participation of uh, uh, other countries and and those who who have uh, shared interest here in order to ensure long-term effectiveness, including uh, detailed plans regarding uh, what types of nuclear substances need to be monitored, uh, how often monitoring needs to happen, uh, where the monitoring needs to take place, and how it needs to be reported and so on. Um, Furthermore, he said this needs to be overseen by the uh,
1: IAEA's
7: Board of Governors, And not merely based on a technical consultation uh, with the agency, which uh, has been suggested could be manipulated without critical oversight from those uh, with interests that diverge uh, significantly from the Japanese government.
1: Uh, Professor Japan claims that their uh, multi-nuclide removal system ALPS makes the treated water safe and harmless. How do you look at this respond and what scientific arguments does Lee present to this meeting to counter this claim?
7: Well he pointed out that the nuclear contaminated wastewater contains over 60, uh, 60 uh, radioactive isotopes, including many that lack effective uh, treatment methods. Uh, furthermore, he said that Japan has not accounted for the actual contents of each storage tank, uh, which includes more than 1.34 million tons stored uh, over, uh, in over 1,300 tanks, uh, and isn't telling us what's in the estimated 100 tons of new wastewater that's uh, still being generated daily. Uh, Lee asserted uh, that however clean or dirty uh, the water might be, a significant amount of harmful substances have already been discharged into the ocean, uh, potentially causing unpredictable risks to marine ecosystems and human health. In short, uh, we don't really know what's being dumped or how it might impact the environment or people or how we might be able to study those impacts over long term or mitigate possible dangers in the future should they Mm arise.
1: So if we look back at Japan's sea discharge, what potential damage might have been caused to Japan and neighboring countries, both in terms of environmental impact and public perception?
7: You know, there might be some willful polluters or or even Japanese nationalists who think they've scored some sort of absurd victory by moving ahead with the discharge. But in fact, I think most people are not happy about it, uh, both in and outside of Japan. I think everyone realized that this has harmed uh, Japan's image, that it's Undercut some confidence in the government and certainly TEPCO, and that this isn't uh, merely about the discharge, but many other aspects com- uh, connected uh, to the Fukushima disaster and its aftermath. Now, you know, having uh, um, uh, uh, been affected by the nuclear attacks in World War II, uh, uh... many Japanese people are very sensitive to radiation poisoning. Uh, in fact, this sensitivity might in part explain why the government decided to dump at sea, that the Japanese people simply could not accept. Dumping it in Japan. Of course, if that's true, then this is a dark trade-off, uh, one that might reassure oneself that this poses no risk to the environment or others, but this is un- uh, this is uncertain. And in the meantime, you know we have many Pacific island countries that were also exposed to Western nuclear uh, weapons testing, who now feel betrayed by Japan, uh, believing they once shared solidarity given their respective experiences. Of course, we've seen impacts already on the uh, Japanese seafood markets, and we've seen increased anxiety in countries neighboring Japan, as well as uh, leading uh, oceanic scientific groups uh, in the U.S.
1: Mm -hmm. Thanks, Professor, for sharing your perspective and expertise on this critical issue. That's Professor Joseph Mahoney of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. That's all the time for this edition of Road Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. I'm Guyana. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.